Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegemelch. Thanks for joining us today. We've got a really important episode today, sort of building off a piece that I had written for The Hill on FEMA's Me Too moment with a recent resignation of a senior HR official and who had allegedly created an environment of of harassment that uh, leadership is really trying to understand and really, really take a very responsible approach to undoing, but uncovering this larger issue of representation, both gender as well as uh, racial and ethnicity within the field of emergency management. This also continues a conversation, I think, really um, started by the Dukes of Hazards podcast many months ago as well, too, where they really sort of looked at this role of Me Too and emergency management. We've got a great expert who was also a participant in that podcast with uh, Dr. Samantha Montano with us today to talk through this issue, really talk through really the origins of the Me Too movement and how important it is, but also there's a much, much larger sort of perspective to look at here that goes beyond that and to really get at some of the root causes and continue to develop and evolve emergency management to uh, truly be representative of the communities that it serves. So really grateful for you to join us today and uh, we'll get right into it and we'll see you on the other side. So joining me now is Dr. Samantha Montano, and she became interested in disasters following a trip to New Orleans immediately following Katrina, where she spent several years working with various nonprofits and recovery efforts related to both Katrina and the BP oil spill. Dr. Montano uh, has a background including a BS in psychology from Loyola University in New Orleans, as well as an MS and PhD in emergency management from North Dakota State University. So, uh, Dr. Montano, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we get started, why don't you tell us just a little bit more about your background and the work that you're currently doing? And uh, I see from your your bio, you've got a very wide range of interests in disasters, but uh, uh, very thorough as well. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, like you said, I got my start um, in the disaster world after Katrina, New Orleans, um, and most of the work that I was doing was uh, with volunteers and nonprofits and kind of doing like community advocacy type work. Um, And that interest has carried over into the research that I do. Um, So I do research on volunteerism, on nonprofits, on emerging groups, um, that kind of area of emergency management. Um, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Great. And thanks so much for joining us today. Now, I've been reading some of your stuff lately in Huffington Post and City Lab and Scientific American and always look forward to uh, uh, the perspectives that you bring to a lot of these different uh, different issues here. I know we got connected sort of in a conversation on Twitter uh, going way back to, I know, uh, our colleagues Mitch and Andrew on the, that other podcast, <laughs> the Dukes of Hazards. Um talking about the Me Too movement and its role in emergency management. And I had that piece in the Hill on uh, the Corey Coleman scandal and sort of what this sort of reflects and sort of soul searching and, and kind of had some dialogue going back and forth. But um, I really wanted to hear kind of from your perspective, there, there's some of this attention now in emergency management and other government sectors regarding the hashtag Me Too movement. And there's some advantages to this. I know you talked about there are also some disadvantages to this. No wonder if you could share um, your perspective on this a little bit. 
Sure. So I think it's maybe important for people who are listening who don't really know much about the Me Too movement to maybe just give a little bit of a background. Um, so the phrase Me Too was actually first used about a decade ago um, by a women's rights advocate named Tarana Burke. She created the campaign to try and give a voice to prim- people, primarily women, who had experienced sexual harassment and assault. Um, and then a year ago, uh, the actress Alyssa Milano tweeted out hashtag Me Too, and that is where it kind of um, exploded and spiraled around the world and through different industries, including through emergency management, uh, as you mentioned. And um, I, what is interesting to me is that I've seen kind of the, um, the usage of the phrase hashtag Me Too kind of shift and change um, depending on who is talking about it and um, kind of the context at which it, in which it gets brought up. Um, So, again, the original purpose of that phrase was to kind of show solidarity among people who had experienced sexual harassment and assault. Um, And now it has kind of evolved into also covering some aspects of, like, gender discrimination and gender bias that happen in the workplace. Um, And so it... Obviously, this is an issue that's being raised across many different industries, um, but we've seen it come up in emergency management more recently. Um, And um, I think that it's a really important topic that we're talking about. I think there are like an overwhelmingly, this is like a good thing, ultimately, that we're having these conversations, um, kind of this like modern day consciousness raising for the 21st century. Um, and you know, these issues are things that women throughout emergency management are experiencing, whether they're in the profession or in kind of the other, um, sectors that are other sectors and fields that are involved in emergency management work. Um, so I think overall it is a good thing that we're having these conversations. Yeah, and, and I remember um, when we were kind of talking back and forth on Twitter too. You you brought up a really really good point, which is that, you know, the the hashtag Me Too and uh, uh you know it's it it has its own meaning really with this more um uh you know blatant harassment and sexual assault mm-hmm. and and um uh, the consequences of that. But then it's sort of blurring over into this much more kind of pervasive um, uh, look at at representation in the different fields and things like that and that may not be the best use of it right where you know you don't want to take anything away from these very very severe sort of situations of of, of genuine harassment and genuine um, um, assault and things like that but really recognize that these are you know these coexist but they're they're um, uh, not the same thing if that's fair to say yeah exactly they're all related but they are different issues um, so If you like, we could maybe talk about sexual assault and sexual harassment in emergency management and then kind of move into the other more systemic issues with gender and emergency management. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that would be good because unfortunately it is usually these these very, very acute situations that sort of grab our attention. But there's this much more sort of, you know, as I mentioned, pervasive um, foundation of imbalance that, that, as you mentioned, these issues are all related, but they're not all the same and the methods of intervention aren't necessarily the same. Right. 
So um, we don't have really great numbers as far as I know uh, within emergency management that really demonstrate the pervasiveness of sexual assault and sex sexual harassment in emergency management. Um, but there was a study done um, about two years ago, I believe, um, by Alyssa Provencio. It was actually her dissertation. Um, and she surveyed some local emergency managers, um, female emergency managers, to um, hear more about their experiences being in the profession. Um, and of the group of women that she surveyed, she found that 7% had experienced violence or physical assault um, in the workplace. Um, and then 59% of them reported having experienced sexual harassment. Um, some of the, again, these numbers vary, um, but the national average um, that I last saw tends to put um, the number of people experiencing sexual harassment around 33%. So just judging from this survey alone, it would seem that this is a more pervasive problem in emergency management than it may be in other sectors, um, which is definitely of concern and um, really validates the um, personal stories that, you know, we've been hearing come out, um, stories like um, what was happening at FEMA. As those stories come out, these kind of put some numbers to the number of women um, that may be experiencing these issues. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I, I know we've both mentioned a few times this, this scandal at FEMA and the Corey Coleman scandal. And for folks who hadn't followed that, there was a, a senior HR official at FEMA who had for years had really created a very toxic environment of, of uh, sexual harassment, hiring women to be potential sexual partners of fraternity members and, and who resigned as the investigation was sort of creeping up. Um, to their credit, uh, I, I will say I know at FEMA, Brock Long, the current administrator, um, was very transparent about the approach to this and looked at it much more systemically. So I think, um, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a sil silver lining in that we know about this because of the way it came to be. But but the fact is that this happened for many, many years, crossing multiple administrations and multiple uh, political appointees sort of overseeing it, and which does raise the question, which um, I believe FEMA is even addressing as well, too, which is how many stories went unreported. Um, and what we're seeing is, is likely only scratching the surface of, of those cases that emerge. Right. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, so, yeah. So in addition to these issues, which obviously need to be dealt with um, and, you know, like you said, are creating this toxic work environment, um, there is kind of this other layer of issues related to gender discrimination um, in emergency management, specifically in the profession. Um, there, again, that same survey that I mentioned before also looked at gender discrimination and they found that 49% um, of the people surveyed had experienced sex or gender discrimination. 76% of women had experienced social isolation and 89% said they felt they had been treated differently because of their gender. Um, so obviously, again, this is like, these are staggering percentages. Um, as a woman in emergency management, I'm unfortunately not surprised to see these percentages. Um, but I think it is good for um, people who maybe haven't thought about this issue very much to kind of 
see the extent to which this is a pervasive problem in emergency management. This isn't um, like an isolated, a few isolated incidences. This is happening across the profession. And when we look at the profession of emergency management, um, I know in the American Community Survey, they uh, identify emergency management directors. And among that, it's 90% white, 75% male, women earning two-thirds as much as men. So it's obviously it's a field that, that doesn't have the level of diversity that reflects the overall community to begin with. Um, and I'm curious your thoughts on how that maybe contributes to this and also um, kind of why that is, why, why emergency management, um, d- despite increased diversity in so many other fields, is still primarily very male, very Caucasian uh, relative to uh, the rest of the country. Sure. So, well, I think the answer to that is pretty clear. It's rooted in the history of the profession. Um, So historically, emergency management has drawn from really male-dominated fields, the military, first responders, um, and those sectors that, you know, are known for having kind of that boys club mentality and culture um, has seems to have been brought over and carried over into emergency management. Yeah, and I, I, you know, use those statistics a lot because they're very striking. But I also wonder sometimes, like if you're looking at the post 9-11 emergency management and sort of the evolution of the field that, that made it much more of a professional career track and made it possible to be independent of some of the uh, the old boys clubs. That um, that statistic is specific to emergency management directors, but doesn't mm. ref- necessarily get at the field as a whole. And so I sometimes wonder if there are more people in the pipeline in junior or mid-level positions who could eventually be directors. Of course, I say that working in the field of academia, which is notorious mm. for having junior and mid-level diversity and still a lot of white Caucasian males at the top. Yeah. So, yeah, a few points to make here. So, um, you know, obviously, as the uh, as emergency management has professionalized, um, some of that has helped to kind of undermine that tradition um, of pulling from military and first responders and like to the benefit of diversifying the profession. Um, So. Let me say that more clearly. Because we have professionalized, um, there are now more opportunities and kind of different points of entry for people that are looking to come into the profession of emergency management. Um, And this is something that researchers have noted has been particularly beneficial for women specifically. Um, So we tend to see that women are entering the profession from like the nonprofit sector, from volunteering, um, but also through degree granting emergency management programs and both the nonprofit sector and um, our degree granting programs tend to be more gendered balanced. They're not um, the high ed programs. I think uh, the last survey said about 40% female students. Um, So not quite 50-50, but much more balanced than the profession is at least. Um, And so that, it, that definitely is changing. There are more women entering the profession of emergency management. Um, that was also supported, again, in that local emergency management study that I mentioned. They found that the majority of women they interviewed had come in through education, volunteering, and I think from having experienced the disaster themselves. Um, and so 
this professionalization of emergency management has given women more of an opportunity to join the profession, but at the same time, which you started to point out, there still is a division of labor between um, what positions women hold within the profession. Um, so uh, there is, research has found that there's a division of labor between um, who is in operational versus support positions. Um, so essentially women tend to be in more support positions. So like doing um, community outreach and administrative type positions, whereas men tend to hold the more operational roles. So working at EOCs, doing plannings, trainings, exercises, those types of things. Um, and so we do see that there's a gender difference there. Um, and then we also, again, do see that there is there are fewer women in positions of authority and in leadership and kind of breaking those barriers and moving into those positions is something that's really difficult for women to do. So I'm going to ask kind of a loaded question here. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, um, and I think it's something we both know, um, but uh, uh, to prompt the conversation. So... Um, so why does it matter, right, in terms of the mission of emergency management, if it's colorblind, genderblind, outlooking? Uh, does it ultimately matter if there isn't uh, representation within the ranks and within uh, sort of distributed throughout emergency management? What are some of the consequences of that? Yeah, so there are really major consequences. Um, and I'm glad we're talking about this because this started to get brought up on that Dukes of Hazards podcast you mentioned, and we ran out of time. Um, but this is, right, so we we want women to be treated well who work in the profession of emergency management because they are human beings and they shouldn't have to work in a toxic work environment, um, right? So for, for them, they should be treated equally, right? At the same time, women not being um, represented in the profession and not being in positions of authority and leadership within the profession has rippling implications for how we do emergency management and how um, female disaster survivors experience response, recovery, and e even mitigation and preparedness, right? There, there's a rippling effect here um, that I think is really important that we recognize. Um, there's a couple different ways to talk about this, but um, I think maybe it would be best. So I have kind of a story that I tend to tell about this that I think kind of encapsulates the issue here. Um, so a few years ago, I published an article with um, one of my colleagues, Amanda Savitt, um, in the Journal of Emergency Management, and it was on gender and disaster, and it was just a basic literature review that kind of assessed where we were with the literature on gender and disaster and looked at really what the actual needs of women are before, during, and after disaster. Um, and so we published it, and a few months later, uh, we found out that a well-known man in our field had written a blog post summarizing our article, which was great. I'm all about science communication. I was like super grateful that he had taken the time to, you know, use his platform to amplify what we had said. Um, but then I went to read the post, and um, the first couple sentences basically said along the lines of. 
Um, a few years ago, I was attending a conference and I went to this session that was about women in disasters. And this part's a direct quote. It's like seared into my mind. He said, um, I'm not sure what I was expecting, but I know I wasn't taking the subject too seriously. And then he goes on to say how he like sat through the session and learned about all the different ways that women weren't accounted for in um, planning that emergency managers do and how like basically going to this session at this conference just totally changed the way he approached his job moving forward. And I think about this story a lot because ultimately, like, it is this success story, right? Like, he hadn't thought about how there might be gender differences and how we experience disaster. He didn't even think it was important. It wasn't something he had thought about. And so he goes to this conference where probably a woman was giving a presentation on this issue, and he kind of, like, saw the light, learned it was an important issue, and then years later, as he's like going through the Journal of Emergency Management, he finds our article and he recognizes that what we were talking about was important enough to dedicate an entire blog post about and amplify it on his platform, right? And so it's this success story <laughs> on its surface, but at the same time, I always get caught up in the fact that he is like a well-established person in emergency management, right? He's like been doing this for years and years and years. And throughout his entire career, he had never thought about 50% of the population that he was serving. Mm -hmm. And he had never thought about how they might experience disasters differently than the other 50%. And that really is scary more than anything, right? Because you, right, like gender is kind of the, most obvious example here, but if you start thinking about how do people of color and white people experience disasters differently, how do people who are differently abled or disabled experience disasters differently, right? And you start going through all of these different identities that we all hold and how we all travel through the world with these different identities and that interacts and explains what we experience during disasters. And if we in the profession aren't considering how we might experience disasters differently, what does that say about how we're planning for disasters, how we are helping people during response, how we are creating programs for people in recovery, right? Like we're not, we don't all experience the same, the world the same way. We don't all have the same needs. And when we act like we do, people get left behind and we don't do effective emergency management. I, I think that's a great, great way of putting it that, you know, if we're going to meet the needs of the community, the community has to be represented um, in those who are who are coordinating all of these systems. And, and as you mentioned, too often the experience and disaster response and recovery from the survivor's perspective is very, very predictable by race, by gender, by socioeconomic status. And if you have cohorts within the community that are disenfranchised and there's no representation of them in that emergency operations center, it's too easy to fall into old habits and what feels right and cognitive bias, which is um, essentially limiting, limiting these decisions to, you know, your past experience and, and no one's past experience is sufficient to, to wrap their arms around the whole community. Um, so I, I, I think, uh, and there's been a, a lot of work in the private sector is actually far ahead of this, recognizing the value proposition of having diversity, both in gender and uh, race within organizations and within organizational leadership, that companies that 
have more diversity do better. They make more money, they run more efficiently, they have better employee satisfaction, that there's just all sorts of things that um, contribute to um, a, a more competitive company um, by valuing diversity that's that's reflective of the broader community um, rather than just sort of going with folks, folks that you know. Um, what are your thoughts in terms of, so how, how are we trying to fix this? <laughs> you know, you mentioned that in some ways the, the, the field is really professionalized a lot. And I think that there's some great writings on that, uh, as well too, on sort of the pre versus post 9-11, um, emergency management field. And it's bringing a whole lot of diversity, uh, kind of a new pipeline, but are there other kind of programs, efforts sort of looking to increase diversity in the field, or is this still the exception rather than the rule that people are, are having this conversation? Um, yeah, I mean, this conversation definitely is happening more than I have the sense that it has happened in the past. That being said, there are many people who have been talking about this for many, many decades. Um, I, um, since I'm not in practice, I don't necessarily want to speak about what individual programs there are um, in the profession, but I can speak about two programs um, that um, are working to diversify the discipline of emergency management um, and disaster research. Um, so there's the Bill Anderson Fund um, that is working on increasing African-American and other minority representation in research. And then there's also SURGE, um, which is funded through the NSF um, to bring underrepresented racial and ethnic minorities into disaster research. Um, and so maybe that's something that's important to point out as well. We don't like only have um, a problem in the profession when it comes to um, diversity. We are also lacking that in research as well. And obviously that in a similar vein is translated into the research that we do and the perspectives that we bring in when we are doing research and um, what communities we're researching, who we're talking to in those communities, right? All of that is influencing the findings of research. And to the extent that those findings of research are making their way out into practice, then that is having, again, another rippling effect. Yeah, that's that's great. And I know in, in um, the piece in The Hill that I wrote to, I was talk, uh, there was a lot of examples within organizational development within the private sector that have been well established that I think are very translatable into the field of practice as well, too. You know, a lot of times, just to, even with simple hiring, right, um, the whole um, uh, behavior-based hiring, and the, if folks unfamiliar, you should um, look into it more. But, you know, a lot of times people hire from their gut. Well, we're somebody who I'm comfortable with. Well, you're most likely comfortable with people like you because you grow up around people like you and so if you're if you're basing everything on your gut you're you're biasing yourself maybe not intentionally maybe not and probably not with bad intention but you're you know stacking the deck and if something doesn't feel right is it that it's not right or is it that it's just being presented in a way that that's less familiar to you and these different methods of interviewing um also um help to uh reduce that cognitive bias. And there's also, I, I think, methods in, um, you know, the way that we address issues of harassment, that, you know, there's clearly discrepancies between um, who, who files the complaint and how seriously it's taken. Um, I know in government, there's sort of this um, self-fulfilling prophecy where people don't initiate 
the uh, disciplinary process because they say you can't fire anybody. Well, and it's really hard to fire somebody, but it's not impossible. But you can't start the process at the end. You have to go through the write-ups. You have to go through um, those critical conversations, which are very uncomfortable for managers, but there's no there's no shortcut. And you're also not providing feedback to people when they're doing something wrong so they have the opportunity to fix it. So I, I, I think that there's just a lot from uh, from other fields, as you mentioned, that um, – you know, uh, and also lessons from research in terms of attracting candidates and creating internships and reaching out into the communities. Um, but as we look more and more at 21st century disasters, I mean, as we record this, we're on the heels of uh, of uh, Hurricane Michael a couple of weeks ago, I guess about a week ago, Hurricane Florence about a month before that, um, and really seeing these, these big discrepancies between the haves and the have-nots and really entire communities just shattered by this. Um, what, what are some of the challenges sort of going forward for emergency management confronting these 21st century disasters? Well, the list is pretty long, um, but I, I think kind of the way I've been summarizing it as I've been kind of grappling with this question as well is thinking about the capacity of the emergency management system. I think that, you know, I even as I'm talking about the disasters from the past two years with my students in class and with other people in the discipline and the profession, I kind of have this sense that we're all still reeling from everything that's happened over the past two years. I mean, we from coast to coast, like we have just been hit over and over again. And I think everyone's feeling it. Um, you know, I wrote a Huffington Post article about this um, maybe last week or so, um, talking about kind of this fatigue that we're feeling from media coverage of these disasters, but I think also all of us who are in emergency management are feeling this fatigue as well. And that, I'm worried about that, right? As we move forward, um, as we start feeling more of the repercussions of the climate crisis, as we start feeling the repercussions of development decisions that have been made and where people have chosen to live or have ended up living, um, you know, we're on this trajectory where I think the last two years are probably pretty representative of what we're going to be experiencing more regularly moving into the future. And to see the strain that has been put on the system as a whole, not only the like formal emergency management system of FEMA and EM agencies across the country, but also the strain that has been put on those more informal systems, like the disaster nonprofits are feeling this. Um, there's like volunteer donation fatigue that's happening with them. Um, and so really seeing that strain and that fatigue um, being kind of throughout the entire system is a huge challenge. I think it's probably the challenge moving forward. Um, and so I think, you know, <laughs> per usual, like more funding, more support, um, you know, having a shift towards mitigation is obviously always welcomed. Um, you know, having more people entering the profession who have a formal degree in emergency management, um, having more research-based programs and policies. Um, and then in addition to all of that, also continuing to work to diversify the profession. I think that we have, um, you know, moving as we look forward and disasters 
are, you know, growing in size and capturing more media attention, I am hopeful that more people will kind of come and join us in emergency management, right? That we'll have new talent and new people who are really passionate about helping communities across the country and kind of helping us through this kind of scary future that we're walking into. Um, and that I'm hopeful that the people who are coming to join us are people that are from a lot of different backgrounds um, and that are coming in not only with, you know, not only just more women, more people of color, but also people who are coming in with different backgrounds who um, are from different places around the world who can contribute um, to the profession, um, you know, their experiences living in other parts of the world and their experiences living in different communities and to really work towards having a more representative profession. Yeah, and, and it's been exciting to also see involvement from other sectors as well, too. And I, I've noticed, um, well, with FEMA, with their revamping of the strategic plan is trying to be very blunt about the limits of emergency management. And obviously, there's a lot of work to increase the capacity and increase the representation um, and increase, you know, evolve the thinking um, and to this, you know, truly whole community approach, but, you know, bringing in the financial sector, bringing in development policy, bringing in economic policy, all these different things that uh, set the table for emergency management, but that emergency management doesn't have direct control over. So I think you bring up a great point that diversity, although we sort of are talking more about gender diversity and a little bit about racial diversity, that even professional and diversity, that we need all the perspectives we can get for the kinds of challenges that we're facing. Right, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so along those lines, you know, from a policy perspective, and I know that you're, you've, uh, you, you know, really been immersed in a lot of the disaster research, you know, there are a lot of, um, you know, these agencies come up for reauthorization every so often, we see reauthorizing legislation every so often, and there's strategic planning cycles. But when we talk about better representation of these underserved communities, from a policy perspective, do you have any thoughts on sort of how, um, really at a very strategic level, these agencies can be better poised to represent underserved communities or underrepresented communities? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, like a long, long list of things that we could be doing. Um, so everything from, you know, doing more formal training on preventing discrimination in the workplace, um, building gender equity into agency policies, um, even doing things like formalizing promotion requirements so that, um, like we talked about earlier, how when women do make it into the profession, that um, there's a more clear and fair way for them to go up the ranks. Um, you know, things like creating the infrastructure within agencies to um, have responsive complaints or be responsive to complaints that are made, to take allegations seriously, um, to, um, you know, it, it enforce penalties against perpetrators of discrimination. Um, all of those things are kind of like the, the obvious kind of low-hanging fruit that needs to be done, not only like at a federal level, but like also within all of these other state and local agencies. Um, I think I, in a way, I'm hesitant to give one specific policy recommendation because there isn't 
one like one solution to this problem. Like that's why people say that Me Too is a movement, not a moment. This isn't mm-hmm. just one thing in time that this hasn't like all of a sudden happened. <laughs> like this has been happening for decades and decades, right? And we've reached kind of a kind of it feels like some kind of threshold in this country where more people are speaking out about these issues now. But this is again, this systemic problem and it's there's not one policy solution that's going to solve all of it. That being said, knowing that the audience for this podcast is probably working in all different places within emergency management, I think that maybe my best advice that I can give is to look at the agency that you work in, look at the piece of that agency that you have some control over and go through and think about if, um, you know, people of color and white women and others have been involved with creating the programs and policies that you oversee. Like, have those voices been involved in the creation of those policies and programs? And if they haven't, then you might want to revisit those. Um, And I think that maybe that's kind of an easier way to think about it is what do I have control over? What changes can I make to work on fixing this problem within emergency management um, so that, you know, as a whole, we can move forward? I think that's another thing that's actually really challenging about addressing um, these issues in emergency management is because we are so spread out over so many different agencies and sectors that there's no like one, you know, one top down policy that I think can really get at this. It has to happen at every single level. Um, And we need to go back and rethink about whether we created the response plans for our community with or without accounting for the different populations that are in our community. And as our communities change, have we updated those plans to reflect that, right? Um, These things have to be happening continuously. This isn't just like a one-time fix. You know, that's, I think, all just very, very great advice. And and a good point, too, that even in the way that we do the planning, I mean, engaging the community that you're planning for in the planning goes back to Quarantelli and really some of the the founding fathers for uh, um, (laughs) at least emergency management in the U.S. Um, And it's still something that we don't don't do a great job with. Um, The organizational development, accountability are all things that are, you know, exist. It's not like we're working without a blueprint, but to apply it can seem very exhausting and overwhelming, but is necessary for the change. And one other piece I'll put in there is I, I always think back, actually, my my high school drama teacher would always say, uh, you don't get to choose to be a role model. You are one. Um, and it's something that I've tried to reject wholeheartedly my whole life. But <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is, too, is that I think for all of us, we're in various places in our careers and various places in the field. And, and we may be looking up at that next rung and how daunting it is to get there. But there's probably somebody entering into the field looking for role models, looking for guidance, looking for opportunities. And sometimes that that personal connection, I know, too, can be uh, really the difference between somebody who remains engaged and, and sort of pushing through perseverance uh, or someone who is maybe kept from entering the field at a very, uh, very early stage. Um, right. And that's one thing that, so I include myself in here, right? Like I am constantly checking myself to make sure that 
when I'm doing research or um, when I'm writing a Huffington Post article or whatever, that I am being, you know, taking into account the experiences of people who are different than me. And so one thing that I have done is create kind of a set of personal policies for myself where I work to be more inclusive in all of the work that I do. So for example, I get asked to speak pretty regularly. If I'm asked to sit on a panel that has more than three people and there's no person of color on that panel, I say no. Um, there's things that all of us can do. We all have certain privileges within wherever we work that we can leverage to help create a more inclusive environment, whether it is, you know, taking the approach that the women in the Obama administration took where um, if one woman brought up an idea and then everybody kind of ignored her, another, the next woman to speak would reamplify that idea, right? So there, we all have ways that in our day-to-day -day lives, we can help to amplify those voices and create more inclusive environments and, um, you know, like you were saying, right, be like a mentor towards others. That's one of the reasons that I have consciously chosen to speak out about gender and emergency management is because I, when I got started, I didn't see people who really looked like me doing this type of work. It took a while to find the other women who were doing this work. Um, but it's really important for me that I am putting myself out there so that my students and other people who are new entering the profession or the discipline can see that there is a place for women in emergency management and that we are here and that we are working hard and that the future of emergency management does look different um, and that, you know, they're not going to be alone. I kind of, maybe sometimes when I t talk about women moving through the profession, it sounds like you know, you're like going to have to fight some major battle. And like some people do, right? that is the experience of some women in the profession. But also, there are amazing women throughout the profession who have paved the way and are continuing to pave the way. And, you know, as with kind of every sector where women are entering um, more than in the past, um, you know, women are paving the way so that the women who come behind us and come next can have a clearer path. And um, obviously, that's not something that only women in emergency management should be doing. Hopefully, men are helping <laughs> with that, too. Um, but yeah, I think that the notion of being visible and being a role model and recognizing and remembering how difficult it was when you got started and helping to bring new people in is really important. And I think to, to what we were talking about before, too, it benefits all of us, right? It's a, um, you know, it, it, it's not just about, you know, righting a wrong, um, although, you know, that's obviously very, very important, but it's also make just making it better, making emergency management better by having more diverse experiences, more diverse opinions, and having the field better reflect the communities that it serves. Uh, but but with that, I also do want to say, you know, I, I'm really, really grateful that you came on to talk about this and, and reached out, and we had our conversation. <laughs> conversation on Twitter as well, too. Um, and I know you've done a lot of speaking out on this and been on a few podcasts. But I also want folks to know that you have deep, 
deep expertise in a lot of different areas of emergency management. Um, and that there's really, really, I'm always um, excited when I see one of your op-eds come out or one of your articles or things like that. Um, everything from the cost of flood insurance to um, really just thinking strategically and what's the latest that the research is telling us to sort of point the direction um, for emergency management policy. Uh, so where can people follow your work and uh, read your blogs and things like that? What's the best way for folks to, uh, to, to keep track of the great work that you're doing? Sure. So the best place to find me is on Twitter. My handle is Sam L. Montano, M-O-N-T-A-N-O. Um, and then you can also find kind of a catalog of my work and more about me on my blog, which is www.disaster-ology.com. Great. And we'll link to that in the description for the podcast as well. Um, but thanks so much for talking through this and I hope to have you back and we'll talk through, you know, there's so many different areas of emergency management. We'll have podcasts for, uh, for years to come, <laughs> hopefully, but, uh, but really, really grateful for your insights and all the work that you're doing. And, uh, uh just thanks again for, uh, um, this really, really important conversation today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And thank you for using your platform to amplify this topic. I really do appreciate that. All right, that does it for today. Thank you so much to uh, Dr. Samantha Montano for joining us today and really walking us through with a lot of great research and references so that we really sort of understand this both uh, by continuing the conversation, but also a lot of the underlying data and and uh, evidence that, that contributes to all of this. If you like what we're doing here on the podcast, give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you download this fine podcast. Let's keep the conversation going. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at DisasterPolitik. Want to be a guest on the show or keep the conversation going a little less publicly? Send us an email at DisasterPoliticsPodcast at gmail.com. Whatever you do, thanks for joining. And in the meantime, stay safe out there.